right, so um, take note that this is kind of attached to and related to the Patrick McDonald collection of uh, vocal Gaelic airs or Highland airs. Uh, so you've already should see on the feed the full audiobook reading. So if you want to kind of listen to the the preface and a little article um, in the 1784 edition of Patrick McDonald's collection, you can do that first. Um, looking at primary sources can be really helpful, but it can it's always a lot better with context and it's always better kind of being kind of handheld through it or kind of led through it to, to notice important things. And, you know, me, I spend a lot of time reading primary sources for tunes and kind of skimming the uh, introduction or um, instructions section of it um, for this podcast. So I wanted to make sure to get some people that had a lot more experience than I did uh, and people that I, I really look up to in terms of bagpipe history. Uh, so this is a this is a cool deal uh, for me. A lot of the people on this Zoom call are, are folks that I've wanted to have on the podcast for, um, I mean, in some cases, years um, from before we relaunched it. So on the call today, you'll see in the description, we've got Barry Shears, the Cape Breton bagpiper, who does some pretty stellar um, performing, but also research into kind of Cape Breton and immigrant piping and therefore kind of old Scottish piping and, and Isles piping. So we're going to have Barry offering his insights. Uh, we've got Matt Seattle, uh, border piper. We've been playing lots of Matt's tunes. Of course, Matt's, um, I don't know, best known is the right phrase for it, but is, you know, we're kind of all indebted to him for the uh, William Dixon collection for border piping, but also I've always just been blown away at looking at um, the number of piping um, tunes that Matt looks through in order to figure out concordances to Dixon tunes or William Vickers tunes. So I was really excited to hear his take on some of the Patrick McDonald stuff. And kind of along those same lines, uh, another just, um, you know, exhaustive scholar of English piping and border piping, Pete Stewart. He's also been the editor for... Um, the common stock uh, journal for many years at this point and uh, has some really interesting things to say. And again, we've just been playing uh, out of Pete's um, the three excellent collections. That's Mr. Preston's Hornpipe. So we've been talking about Pete a lot lately and I actually just got three more of his books in the mail. So we're going to probably be hearing some more Pete Stewart in the uh, not too distant future. And then finally we have Keith Sanger who I've been trying to kind of get on the podcast for a long time. Uh, Keith's, just an exhaustive researcher. Um, and often, you know, I've mentioned Keith many times in the podcast because uh, after many episodes, I'll get an email from Keith kind of pointing out some things I should add in or just having a cool conversation about the stuff that we're talking about. And I've had many topics that I've wanted to just have Keith on. So we finally do. Uh, it's a little bit tricky. Keith's technology setup wasn't as uh as stellar as the rest of ours so he's just phoning he's literally phoning it in i guess is what you'd say but uh he phoned into the zoom call so there's a little bit of um discrepancy there compared to the rest of our voices which honestly will probably help in being able to tell everyone's voices apart uh thankfully we all have pretty different accents uh, and uh, ways of speaking um but that might just be my perception so just going to do a quick little introduction Hi, this is uh, Barry Shears in uh, British Columbia, Canada. It's Matt Saddle here in Hoyt, Scottish Borders. I had some slight timing and technical difficulties with getting Pete and Keith on uh, to introduce themselves, but here is Pete's voice. That is true, I'm Pete Stewart. And here is Keith's. The piping sections in Patrick McDonald's work 
So as you can see there, I, I think we all have pretty different accents, so that should make it uh, easy enough to listen to us all talk. Uh, the only other bit of context, uh, you know, this is a, a Zoom call, more or less, that happens pretty regularly that John Daly sets up, and uh, he wasn't able to make it to the recording session, but we do talk about him a little bit. So uh, thanks, John, for kind of making all the introductions that were necessary for this to happen. Um, Okay, I'm going to let this go. The conversation starts just with uh, Pete and I kind of talking on the Zoom call before other folks show up. And I'll check in briefly at the end. Oh, I've been reading too much 18th century literature. That, <laughs> it's it sort just of, kind of gets to, you know, you start talking, like, or at least you start thinking like that. Yeah, I capitalize everything I write. Like, my... <laughs> My wife hates proofreading. Well, she doesn't. She's a very kind editor and proofreader, but um, she always just laughs because I capitalize whatever word I'm feeling like it just as a result <laughs> of 18th century. <laughs> it was funny listening to that guy read it too, just realizing like all the things that my students would complain about when assigning an 18th century text. Like it's hard because the Fs are S's. Like, well, that's sort of a charm if a primary source is just exactly like a tiktok video it's sort of boring like yeah yeah <laughs> i kind of want it to be different morning <laughs> or evening <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about uh getting jeff jones uh see if he wants to pop in from australia just to make sure we get as many continents covered as, as possible <laughs> but i every time he and i wind up messaging i completely don't understand the time zones and wind up <laughs> talking to him at like 3 a.m but oh, speaking please. of time zones Barry you're uh thanks for thanks for making it to this you're you're generally talking to somebody in Romania or something is that uh, right? Slovakia yeah Slovakia. he actually emailed me this morning but um wanted to sneak a lesson in but I, I said I, I committed to this so it's it's the worst possible time we don't have it every Wednesday uh but and especially in the summertime but in the fall and winter it's hard to join in on these sessions so yeah um, yeah no i was looking forward to this one i I had a chance to go through um that uh, patrick mcdonald's collection so um there's some interesting tunes i found the uh, the most interesting was the pipe music at the end yeah uh, because i'm not that good on the violin and i only just bought a piano three months ago so (laughs) another instrument to torture people with so yeah yeah <laughs> we, uh, we 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 disposed of it or i disposed of our piano uh most of it and uh, and acquired a secondhand really good electronic keyboard um which you can plug in that's the real mm-hmm. advantage of it <laughs> you can right. plug the headphones in it and nobody all they can hear is the keys going up and down <laughs> hey we got keith too hello all keith right. Hello, who's there? <laughs> right, so far it's uh, Jeremy and Barry is on and Matt and Pete are. I think I might wait a little bit for John just in case he, he makes it. Oh, he wanted to ask intelligent questions, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the hope. That I mean, Well, the bigger problem is get producing intelligent answers. <laughs> uh, I found the, um, the, the vocal airs section of the, of the book um, I found it, it stood out in having a lack of harmonic underpinning in most of the melodies. Yeah. They were very... There's a good reason for that, and that it's very difficult to provide uh, harmonic underpinning for traditional uh, 
Gaelic airs that are sung in a free rhythm. There's yeah. a similar problem with the Eliza Ross manuscript. Uh, she did actually, and a few of them tried to put in uh, a harmonic accompaniment and then gave up out of, uh, well, yeah. out of sense, probably. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate it's, it's a different idiom. It's not a, it's not a criticism. It's just something that struck me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I like... Um... I like in uh, the preface, I guess, uh, it just mentions, or, or I think in both of the, the written pieces, it mentions it'd be easy to fix these or to improve them, um, but that would be wrong. Uh, so it's up to you to fix it if you want to, but this is as close as, as I could get it to how it was sung. I, th I thought it was really interesting that he, uh, am I right, Keith, did you say that Walter Young had written both the preface and the, the, uh, the next bit, whatever we call that? Mm -hmm. Walter Young is credited with uh, by Patrick McDonald. He actually states specifically that Walter Young uh, wrote the preface, although obviously with a lot of input from Patrick McDonald himself. The uh, essay was by Ramsey of Octotire, who was a prolific writer. He was the one that did Scotsman and the Scotland and Scotsman in the whatever it is. I mean, there's about ten volumes of his stuff sitting in the National Library, All right. but. Um, Young only was, was involved in the preface. Right, yeah, okay. Um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say now. What, where were we? <laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> Does that oh, count dear. as an unintelligent question then? <laughs> um, One thing I did, if I can say, um, reading uh, Jeremy's stuff, uh, it did seem to be an element which I, well, it came across to me as a bit of a, uh, a misunderstanding. The piping sections in Patrick McDonald's work, the Pibroch, uh, according to him, he went to a piper uh, belonging to a family he was nearly connected with, which theoretically should be the McDonald's of Kepoch in Lochaba. Um, at that time, I don't have any information that they actually did maintain a piper, but if you're looking at Lochaba in general, then the Camerons certainly did. Um, but the North Highland airs, uh, sorry, the North Highland dances. Yeah, uh, he got from a separate piper. That's quite clear if you read the preface. Uh, read the preface, and the North Highland dances were more likely to have been got from George MacLeod, who was the piper around up at Durness where they were brought up. Uh, he was piper to Mackay of Big House. So the probability is a high probability is that the 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 dances were got from George MacLeod up in. So I think, uh, up in Sutherland. Oh, wow. So that and that's the collection that has like all of the recognizable bagpipe tunes to us and lots of connections to border music, and it's from like basically the north tip of Scotland. Is that right? Yeah. Well, actually, I can if I can ask. Well, <laughs> whether the question is intelligent or not, something that struck me a long time ago, and that is. Um, I've never been quite able to work out why it is, as with that section of Patrick MacDonald, the, um, the collector notes a whole load of tunes, but does not give them titles. And it's not unique to him. I mean, Jeremy, you know those three volumes related to Isla, just over the 1800s. Um, the same thing happens in there. You, if you're lucky, you get uh, a tune with pipe reel above it or another pipe reel. But for some strange reason... Um, the collectors don't seem to want to give them the actual titles that the tunes might be known by. Any yeah. ideas, anybody? Maybe, uh, maybe it predates the uh, the, the 
the uh, process of dedicating tunes to individuals. So maybe maybe it was just a melody that somebody came up with and. Well, they still were ten. Well, they still used to get the titles, didn't they? And the other thing that crossed my mind was, although it, it doesn't really work, it's a bit too early, is that it was a way of getting around somebody claiming that they'd infringe copyright. I mean, if you don't name it, <laughs> you're free to say, "Well, I didn't know; it belonged to somebody else." That still goes on today. Yeah. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose it depends where where you learnt it from. I mean. It may have been completely irrelevant, but I'm familiar with a, a whole repertoire of French music for which I have absolutely no titles at all. I just learned them, you know, <laughs> from, from hearing them played. And, and every now and then someone will say, what do you call that tune? And the person playing it was saying, I don't know, I learned it off of so-and-so, you know. Um, and they, most, of them, most of them do have some kind of title, but, but um, nobody seems to know what they are until you... I suppose you have a point there. If, it, if they're ear-learnt tunes, I mean, if, if you uh, are musically literate and you hear a tune you like and you write it down straight away in a manuscript and you tend to write down the title as well, but if they're ear-learnt tunes, then you're at no point ever going to write down the notes, let alone the title. And over time, it's just one of the tunes you happen to play. You could easily lose track of any titles. So I suppose yeah, yeah. that is a possibility. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that happens today still in the Cape Breton fiddling tradition. Ashley McIsaac, of course, the great young Cape Breton fiddler, he played a jig, uh, which he picked up by ear. It's a pipe tune, uh, John McKenzie of Loch Torridon by Bobby McLeod. He plays it as a jig and, and he didn't know the, num the name of it. So uh, they're rather lazy on the naming side. So when he reported it, he, ca he called it creme de mint. <laughs> sure, right. so, another another classic example is Donald McLeod's Crossing the Minch, um, oh. the hornpipe. Um, Winston Scotty Fitzgerald heard Sandy Boyd play it at a house party in Cape Breton, and he said, "Oh, that's a great tune. You know, where'd you get that from?" He said, "Oh, I don't know. It was given to me uh, by a piper named McNabb." So in Cape Breton, Crossing the Minch is known to this day, ever since the 1960s, as as uh, McNabb's hornpipe. Yeah. I kind of wonder too, uh, I mean, I get the sense from this collection, certainly from the, the preface and the, the essay, there's this, we're trying to save these tunes before they're all gone, but maybe with the, the Isla collection and some of the other sort of unnamed ones, like, well, these are popular tunes that are played all over the place. And we understand that people have different names for them. Um, I mean, you get just from my cheating and either looking at Matt's footnotes in the back of one of his collections or uh, in the back of this collection or looking at traditional tune archive, you can see just how many tunes have dozens of names that seem yeah. to have I'm no relation. Well, I think the Patrick McDonald's collection, if, if I'm right with about an earlier collection, uh, Daniel O'Donnell Dow's, I think there's an, a political element to it. Not quite as political as Dow's work, but um, the timing of the publication is interesting because bear in mind that uh, the section that started the whole thing off, which was his brother Joseph's work, that dates back to 17, or before 1760. Yeah. So Patrick MacDonald actually publishes it some 24 years or more later. And it coincides with the fact that the, uh, what should we say, um, the things were lightening up and the um, act of prescription had been uh, reversed. The Highland Society of London was starting to promote 
albeit with the gentry, uh, aspects of Highland culture. And uh, a few years earlier, of course, Dow had come out with his work, which I've argued is totally political, a sort of trial and error thing to see how the, the tunes would go down with very uh, um, Jacobite-related titles. And so it does in some ways look as though uh, Patrick may have had the idea in mind for quite a while, but the time around about 1784 suddenly became right for publishing a, a, a collection very geared towards Gaeldom and the Highlands. Yeah, I think that's that's the whole timing of that thing is 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 crucial to the way it's presented. Um, you know, post Ossian, um, uh, not post Ossian, sort of mid um, mid debate across yeah. Europe for the whole thing. Um, suddenly, uh, anything uh, with the word Highland in it <laughs> must have been sort of uh, in demand. Um, but. but Joseph McDonald, of course, wouldn't have known about that. Right, right. He, he you know, it was published just after he died. At the first, the first uh, excerpts, so of of Ossian's work. So. Um, oh, sorry, I thought you were still talking about music as opposed to or Ossian, Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that the effect was was that anything uh, Highland suddenly became um, uh, in vogue. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, well, I've just remembered what, what I was going to say. Going back to talking about accompaniments, um, it's it's really interesting that um, the preface says he didn't want to do it. He knew it was going to be a, a challenge, but it was his subscribers who insisted on having it, uh, largely mm. because they wanted to play it on the piano. Right. <laughs> I mean, and that's what he says, basically, that, that, um, that, that, that he, he, he felt obliged to, because not because he thought it was a good idea, but because his mm. subscribers wanted it and they needed his subscribers. And, right. uh, yeah. and he got mid which is which is a reflection of how suddenly there was that interest in anything Highland. Well, I suppose that would probably be what triggered him passing it on to uh, Walter Young, because uh, although Patrick McDonald had a reputation as a violinist, or fiddler, whichever way you want to choose, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he was at one time to the disgust of the rest of the General Assembly people attending in Edinburgh. He actually stood in for a professional musician who was ill uh, in a concert. Um, but of course, he played the fiddle, and you don't uh, need a bass harmonic for the fiddle. Well, you can have one, but you can't play it on the fiddle at the same time as you're playing the actual tune. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, one, uh, Patrick would have been a very, very good. Uh, musician, uh, he would have been weak in the sort of area of actually producing a harmonic accompaniment for a bass, whereas the Reverend Walter Young uh, was the complete opposite. He you know, he could play a whole variety of instruments and was the ideal person to actually try and wrestle with what Pete's described, producing something that uh, they know from the start is not really going to fit. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Beethoven had the same problem. <laughs> Um, so, oh, terrible job he made. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, uh, so it's not surprising. But actually, now I come to think about it, I haven't looked at those bases. Um, it'd be interesting uh, to go back and, and just see what kind of a job he made of it and what kind of compromises he, made, he had to make. Yeah, um, it, it's it's definitely busy. 
it's busier than uh, I was. I was playing through some of Robert Brebner's basses uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was sort of dulled to tears with like, "Oh, this is this is super yeah. easy. Why have I avoided this?" Um, and yeah. yeah, the ones that Walter Young wrote are definitely more more thorough, I guess. Yeah, well, I think Brebner's ones are really are really sort of for uh, a bass instrument, a cello or something. They're not keyboard basses. I don't. As I have always imagined, and we and we know that that that's how it was done. You know, a, a fiddle and a and a, a bass fiddle, a, a cello, was was pretty standard um, uh, musical accompaniment for dancing. Yeah, they're fairly rudimentary, but they but they give you the they give you the beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt, you've taken your glasses off now, but did you have something? I was just you're talking about subscribers, and I, I just opened a random page of the subscribers, and obviously a lot of people from various parts of Scotland, but also Oxford and Bath in oh, the wow. south of England. Right. Uh, I mean, some of those would be Scots that have you know moved, moved to England, but um, you know, there's a big spread of, of locations in that subscribers list. Yeah, right. I had I had a lot of fun um, poking through that subscriber list and kind of recognizing names there's um like in, in terms of the popularity of, of highland you know anything highland like like pete was saying and uh and keith like one of the names in that list is uh, sort of the chief of clan mctavish who winds up having all this weird relationship with this fur trader um simon mctavish and simon mctavish becomes the wealthiest man in canada and sponsors a bunch of lachlan's kids but it was just cool to see lachlan's name show up in this list of subscribers of because supposedly yeah. Lachlan, like Simon McTavish's interaction with Lachlan is why Simon hired a piper to come over and play in Canada, essentially, to entertain everybody. But... I'm afraid when it comes to lists like that, I have a, a rather uh, pedantic approach. Mind you, it was encouraged by, by Roddy, who had me consulting all these things. Um, my impression from the list with Patrick McDonald is that the period between the subscribers subscribing, and the publication was quite short. Now, the reason behind that logic is if you, for example, take the list of subscribers to, well, Angus Mackay, um, if there's a long period between, if there's a large list of subscribers and there's a long period between the subscription being um, set up and the actual publication, you will usually find when you look down the subscribers list that at least one or two of the names will have a little um, what do they call it? This little sort of a sword-like thing beside the name to indicate they're now dead. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so if you haven't got any of those, it means that the list wasn't open that long, <laughs> not long enough for people to die. <laughs> it must have been advertised in the Times or whatever the the, the broadsheet. I've never found the initial subscription uh, advert. I have got. The advert that was placed, um, because there were so many subscribers, there were very few copies left for um, the general public. I'm just reaching into the drawer. And um, there was an advert placed in uh, the papers to say that uh, the, I've got it in front of me, uh, this day is published, price to subscribers, seven shillings and sixpence, non-subscribers, half a guinea. Um, 
The edited begs of the subscribers to this work who are resident in or near London and whose residences are unknown to send for their copies without delay as only a few copies are remaining over the number subscribed for, the sale of them in Scotland having been so rapid. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, you picked up you picked up your copy in England, was that right, Matt? And is there like a name on it that is associated with the subscribers? Or is no, it just there's not. Like... No, it's, um, it's, it's bound... Yeah, that's much better than reading the Google Book version. <laughs> and the binding says McDonald's Highland Vocal Airs, 1781. Now, I don't know if that's the actual date of publication, but that's the date on the binding. That's interesting, because the, um, no, the date of publication was definitely 84. Yeah. Um, I wonder if the, well, the subscription list might have been 1781, or... Um, what you're looking at is a copy that's been bound afterwards and somebody was guessing at the date. Yeah, yeah. it looks like probably that's the case, yeah. Because most of these things were actually sold unbound because a lot of the people who are buying them might Uh have wanted them to fit into their bookcases and so you actually bought the volume unbound and then had it bound to your taste. Right, okay. That's very interesting. You can see see the, the press marks I don't know if you'd see it on here, but if I hold one up, there's a very faint line around the printed part, which would be the impression of the printing press, with a, a, a gap around it, which you wouldn't get on a modern computer printing. Well, <laughs> yes. so you can see the impression mark. Yeah, yeah. It's, right. it's, it's, you can touch it, you can feel it. Yeah, it's, we're, it feels like we're losing... I love having all the stuff at my fingertips, but there's something about seeing the actual evidence of the process uh, kind of in a old printed page, you know, it's great. So I have, uh, if we're, I'm kind of curious um, about, you know, Walter Young and David Young. So, you know, this, this collection, it's sort of funny that none of the things that were reread uh, or like none of the writing in here is from Patrick McDonald uh, per se, um, but I'm, I'm interested in David Young's re- relationship to Joseph McDonald. If David Young is the rector or the master at Haddington, um, I know we've we've talked about this before, sort of trying to figure out if this is the famous David Young. Um, and I think Keith, you said you had something about like having uh, a location well, of David Young. That question of some time back, and I did some digging, and as far as I could tell, they were two different people because while David Young was rectoring at Haddington. <laughs> Uh, if I can put it that way. Um, the other David Young was active up in Aberdeen and the Music Society up there and various other things. Um, it's not 100% certain, but the probability is that you're looking at two different David Youngs. I kind of wondered that, like, I, I want, I, I so desperately want it to be one David Young um, for just stupid <laughs> musical fanboy of the 18th century reasons. But since Walter Young wrote this and includes this this David Young was Joseph's teacher thing, you'd think he would have mentioned, like, I, I just assumed that he would have done some, well, my father, mind, you know, the famous fiddler, but I'm not David sure. Young was Walter, you know, David Young was Walter Young's father. Uh, mm. Not here that we know quite a lot about the family because the sister, Anne, was also um, quite a musical genius in some ways. She, uh, she went on to teach music in Edinburgh and she also uh, produced what was called a musical game 
right. which right. she patented, which was somewhat remarkable. I mean, a, a woman producing a musical game and then patenting it at that period, about 1800, in itself was remarkable. But um, there's a, one of them, uh, there is actually an uh, example of the musical game in the National um, Museum of Scotland, a uh, very nice piece of work. It's all sort of uh, n- nice wooden case. You open it up and uh, you've got the game inside. And there's a book of instructions that goes with it. And I hit the book of instructions first. There's a copy in the music library in the Edinburgh Central Library. Uh, until I sort of then later discovered that the actual game itself was still around. But on reading the book of instructions, the first thing that struck me back in the 1970s was that you needed a degree in music to actually understand the rules of the game. <laughs> my my um, admiration for the depth of knowledge of the young ladies studying music at that time went up in leaps and bounds. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what I feel every time I read one of these things, um, like any kind of instructional, like as soon as he's talking about thirds, fifths, and sevenths, and where to plant the tonal harmony i just i tuned out like just couldn't I, I thought that was that was one of the most interesting things to me uh the way he kind of tried to construct these the 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 music tr- trying to sort of force it into a into a uh, his understanding of what music uh, was all about yeah. um and he it, <laughs> It's, it's an interesting sort of concept. I mean, he uses, he talks about the, the lesser third yeah. and the lesser scale. Now, I'm assuming that it just means a, a minor, what we would call a minor third. Um, and he, but he, he, he goes about getting these things and he finishes up with a, this scale, which is basically just a pentatonic scale. Sure. <laughs> but he, he never says as much. You know, he, 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 he goes on about there, not, there being no sharp sevenths and all this sort of stuff. And he, there are no fourths either, except in passing notes. But but it, it, it's like you know, I know all this stuff, um, and, and it must. I'm, I can I can sort of describe it according to what I know. In actual fact, you don't need to know that. You look at these things, and you can see that, it's that there are only five notes, and the intervals are always the same. Well, I mean, pentatonic is everywhere, um, but uh, one. Uh, Possibly um, valuable suggestion, uh, whether it's uh, one can develop it. Um, I think uh, Barnaby was floating at one stage, and that is that if you take things far enough back in um, both Scotland and Ireland, you end up with lyres, or the tympan, as they called it in mm. Ireland in Gaelic. Yeah. And um, tympans may or have only had five strings. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, yeah. Since you mentioned liars, are you aware of, of the um, the duel that happened between Pan and Orpheus? No. Uh, who won? <laughs> okay, well, the thing is, Pan, you know, he's got these little Pan pipes, obviously. And uh-huh. He's just utterly, utterly full of himself. And Orpheus is a you know kind of peaceful intellectual guy, but Pan's just always, always prodding him, poking him, and uh, eventually, he's taunting Orpheus so much he's, he's kind of making it a bit personal because Pan's got these these goatee attributes. He's kind of um, implying that Orpheus is a bit of a wimp, 
So eventually Orpheus says, okay, if that's the way you want it, we'll have a musical duel. Come on, baby, <laughs> fight my liar. <laughs> well, hanging on the hanging on the Orpheus tag, I have a copy which I when I finally tracked it down years ago. It was to a uh, a book of, of was published in Aberdeen from the top of my head. I think it was about some sixteen thirty thirty ish. There is only one known surviving copy, which I tracked down to the Huntington Museum in California, and arranged them to give me a copy of the of one of the plates. And the plate consists of is titled Orpheus's Fiddle. And underneath it is a very nice drawing of a harp. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> with, with how many strings? <laughs> uh, I can't remember. I'll send you a copy. I mean, it's, only, uh, it's got sort of uh, Huntington Library not to be reproduced over it, but I trust you people. Um, <laughs> and there's only, one, there's only one copy plus possibly only the one photocopy they sent me, then probably spreading it around as... Is a, is a good safety mechanism. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> hey, I was uh, I was sort of curious, uh, kind of going back to Haddington. Um, like I, I've I, I see in like Wikipedia and things that the that school is described as a grammar school, but the way that Patrick talks about, or not Patrick, but the way that uh, Walter talks about Joseph McDonald's education there, uh, like being so centered on music and art. Like, is it more of a? Is it a? institution that specialized in the arts is it just a send away school like what's the grammar, okay. grammar school is a sort of catch-all from the very early days when uh, schools were being provided certainly in scotland they tended to be referred to as grammar schools because primarily they were being set up to teach well grammar yeah. but um it sort of hung on so it's a it's by that time it's more a generic term it doesn't mean to say that grammar is the only thing that's being taught i've forgotten the the, the guy's name was it is it leslie um, do you remember, Jeremy? You looked him up and got the son and not the not the father. Oh yeah, I can't remember. Um, he, who was he was he was the rector at the grammar school before David Young, and his thing was uh, education through, uh, particularly theatre, okay. but partic uh, music as well. I mean, he was way way ahead of his time in, yeah. in terms of ed educational uh, philosophy, but. Um, that was why uh, the boys of, of Haddington Grammar School were the first people to perform The Gentle Shepherd. Okay. And uh, in the late 1720s. And these and, are boys. We're talking like chill, like 10 years old. And... Well, yeah. I mean, we're talking, we, I mean, by the age of 12, um, some, some uh, 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 sons were at university. And they all they were all acquainted with Latin and Greek. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty difficult to, to, to grasp these yeah. days, but that appears to be the case, especially if your father was a minister. Yeah, sure. Which, of course, Pat the, the McDonald's what father was. Yeah. Um, I suspect they were both groomed in in Latin uh, and Greek, oh. certainly in Latin. Um, McDonald's father was a minister, and his mother was a minister's daughter. Right from Pip and Weem, which whether the daughters, come... whether the daughters were trained in Latin and Greek, I don't, I wouldn't think so. It mm. would depend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, is... 
lot of women were educated. One of the um, contributors to the Val Carras Luke book is a Jean Moore who, who made some of the settings of, of the tunes. And uh, it's quite common for, for ladies to be musically educated. The, the um, Margaret Sinclair's music book is, is very early 1700s. Um, she didn't compile it, but it was, it was compiled for her by a man called Andrew Adam and uh, has keyboard and fiddle arrangements in it. So, you know, you presume that she was learning and she, she was able to play the stuff. Yeah. And was it Young's daughter was also like, that was the well, yeah. piano oh, yes. teacher. Uh, Anne Young, um, yeah. Walter Young's sister, Anne Young. Um, she actually went on to marry uh, John Gunn, he who wrote the treatise oh. on the Upsville Highland Society. Although, according to Dayell, it was an interesting marriage and they didn't live together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pass. <laughs> but she was obviously, uh, from Patrick McDonald's letter, she was obviously the musical governess of the McLean Cleefane daughters, who again were uh, very musically talented young ladies. Uh, in fact, there were a number of musically talented young ladies around that time on, on, on Mull. Um, the daughter of um, uh, McLean of Cole uh, was, uh, had a music book. Uh, it's no longer around. Um, the daughter of McLean of... Um, yes, it would have been McLean of Cole. Uh, Brett Olbain McLean. Uh, unfortunate name for the young lady. Her father was the colonel of the Brett Olbain Defence Force in the station in Musselburgh in about 18... 17... 17... 18... 18... No, 17... a mascot, I guess. That's, that's great. What, what, what do you mean? What, what was her name then? Brett Olbain McLean. Oh. <laughs> we know that she also had a collection of music because um, uh, Alexander Campbell mentions the number of ladies that he uh, had when he did his tour of uh, Albin's anthology. Oh, yeah. He mentions the number of the ladies on Mull who had collections of music. Um, I, I tried to track down any remains of Brett Olbain McLean herself. And uh, I got down to somewhere in England in about 1855, and then the trail goes cold. Pete, uh, just one last question about Haddington. You live right, you live kind of near there, I yeah. think. Is, yeah. it, is that also the Knox Academy, or is that a, that's a different yeah. thing? That that, is, okay. that, the high school in, in Haddington now is, is the Knox, yeah. Okay. Whether they're related, uh, whether there's a continuous tradition there of schools, I have no idea. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, some of some of my partner's uh, kids went there. Okay, um, uh, but we're halfway between two high schools, so we could have gone either way, really. So yeah, I mean, to, back to educated. I mean, it, it, during the seventeenth century, it looks to me like um, it was normal practice to give um, daughters music lessons. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, certainly like 18th and 19th century. I mean, that's all of Jane Austen's stuff, right? Is you've <laughs> got to be able to sing and play pianoforte or something. Yeah. And dance. Yeah. What was that, Barry? And crochet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> crochet. Well, yeah. Needlework is the other thing that, that, um, yeah. the, um, uh, that's always been the, the prerogative of, of Daughters of the House. I was thinking about the, the Weems' daughters. Um, 
Margaret um, uh, has a the, the Margaret Weems is is one of these manuscripts, um, uh, lute manuscript. I mean, they they were mostly in the seventeenth century playing the lute, mm. um, uh, and there are lots of portraits. Well, lots. I can think of two or three. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably there are a lot more that I don't know about. Um, Otherwise, uh, Mrs. Crockett and her, her manuscript is a is a mixture of fiddle and keyboard. Right, right. I, right. I, I, I don't know if she wrote the, the settings or if that was a tutor. Yeah. Writing yeah. it for Mrs. Crockett's music book. So. Well, yeah, and Margaret Margaret Williams says um, uh, a, a part of the book. She says I copied it from my sister's book, mm -hmm. who was presumably older than her. Um, uh, so there, you know, there's a there, there's a family tradition of, of uh, t t and and it's I, I don't know about this, but the Balcaris um, book has obviously belonged to someone who is being taught, whether it's uh, whether it was a woman or not. I, I have no idea because I've not read the the, uh, the preface to to the publication, uh, the recent publication of it. Yeah. Um, the I mean, I the Weems. The Weems book, uh, well, that's an interesting one. Um, the elder sister, the one that she copied it from, mm -hmm. the older sister ended up married to um, up in the Earl of Sutherland. There were actually two cross marriages later, a generation also married up there, so it's, it's always been a question as to which marriage resulted in the, the Weems manuscript ending up in Sutherland. But um, Margaret, she died young. Uh, nothing to do with the music, but interestingly, she, her father, because the, the, the family business, so to speak, the old Weems income, came from the port of Dysart. Uh, two factors. One, they were mining coal, and so they were exporting coal through Dysart. But the other one was that because they were mining coal, they could then use it for the salt pans, and so they were also uh, exporting salt through Dysart, which was, again, a very expensive commodity. And so... Uh, uh, Margaret's father, David, later Earl of Weems, they actually lived just on the edge of Dysart. And one of the oldest buildings in Dysart is known as the Towers, and was actually where my mother was brought up when she went to school. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a circular thing. Um, then again, she was at school with Jimmy Shan, so there was a big question either. Uh, but um, the Weems manuscript is the earliest source of the, um, the tune. Um, that be manum, give me your hand. Oh. Yeah. And that also appears in the Balkaris notebook. Yeah. And it was also, uh, the next earliest one appears in um, Oswald. And Oswald came from just up the coast. Yeah. Uh, isn't, there yeah a version, isn't there a setting in, in, what, in the McFarland? There's one, yes, so that's, that's yeah. later, which were about early settings. Now, um, right. I've actually put this down somewhere. There was an Italian musician in a resident in Edinburgh called Lorenzo Rodzi, uh, and he uh, was active um, in writing uh, the music for one of the marriages of the Weems family. Subsequent to that, he ended up across in Dublin and was a contributor to the, that earliest Neil publication in Dublin, which again over there is the earliest uh, version that anybody knows of of Da Mihi Manum. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and putting it all together, the, 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 the so-called story that comes from the late early 19th century from O'Neill, that it was to do with the Eglinton family just doesn't stand up. There's no trace of it in the Eglinton family, and they were musical. It all originates, if you follow the, the earliest forms, across into Fife. Mm-hmm. And uh, three collections, which are, to a certain extent, geographically associated. First the Weems, then the Balcaros, and then Oswald. All right. So there's, I, 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 mean, I thought it was uh, composed, was it Rory Delacane that... that... Composed it. Well, it was claimed to have, well, o- O'Neill, Arthur O'Neill, who was, he had some great tour stories. Um, he is the only source for the whole of that. It was composed by Rory Dardo Kane uh, mm-hmm. and various other things. Um, I, uh, with a degree of trepidation, uh, did a, a thing on the fact that it looked like there was no evidence whatever for the Irish Rory Dardo Kane. Mm-hmm expecting a great um, bounce back from Ireland. Um, and to my surprise, um, it was a resounding, almost a resounding silence, except I noticed that uh, uh, Nicholas Carroll had added into the, the, the current readings for the traditional <laughs> music archive over there. Um, but basically, there's absolutely no evidence for Rory Dardo Kane. It all stems back to O'Neill in uh, a 1808, his, his memoirs. Right. <laughs> so I have, uh, to, to take us away from uh, older, older tune collections, one of the things I, I really liked in the preface and the article, both of them make reference to smaller pipes being used for dancing. Yeah. Um, I know in the past on the Zoom call, we've talked about kind of the Gaelic name for, for what we kind of bluntly call border pipes. Um, but I can't remember quite what it was, or at least what the Pe- translation Pe- was. Pipe Shonach. And what, that, that's just little pipe? Is that what that translates? Pipe, bellows, bellows pipe. Oh, all right. And uh, the word, um, this is this is secondhand from Jamie McDonald reed who explained to me that um, depending on a, a slight difference in the spelling, it means fox's pipes or bellows hmm. pipes. <laughs> <laughs> same same word if it's I think it's if it's masculine or feminine noun, one means one thing and the other means the other thing. Hmm. Trouble is that well, coming back to, to stay with stay with MacDonald, um Joseph MacDonald, uh, a lot of additions were made to the Pinterest book, which one has to strip out. In the actual manuscript where he refers to um uh what one presumes are Bellows pipes uh, from he didn't like them, but he seemed to be referring to one specific type, which Roddy um, suggested uh, and argued was, in actual fact, the precursor of what we now call the pastoral. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And reading it, uh, that would make sense because whatever um, Joseph was referring to was definitely quiet, drawing room, and was trying to play modern music, more, more modern for that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, which certainly doesn't sound anything like the, the large bellows brown pipe that was still being played by the Borough Pipers. Mm-hmm. So one has to sort of have a range of sizes. But also the question is whether they were always played with, in fact, with bellows. Um, there is one very interesting document, which originally came from Dunvegan, but it sort of lost its way and now belongs, it now lives in the Museum of the College of Piping, or what it is now called. Um, in the accounts for 
Dunvegan for um, 1711-12, there was a purchase by MacLeod of two pipes for Macrimmon. According to the letter, um, the pipes came from a deceased Ranald, and um, the letter is expressing the fact that uh, he was hoping, before he died, he was hoping to get uh, more for the two pipes, uh, sorry, hoping to get for the one pipe, what he describes as a large pipe, uh, uh, as much as that Macleod was offering for both pipes, but the other pipe was described as a small pipe. Hmm. And again, elsewhere I have argued that the Ranald um, uh, concerned is Ranald McCallan Oak, a well-known uh, piper in Highland terms, and that uh, he had died, and so his nephew, or bastard son, depending which way you want to euphemize that, uh, was only interested in the money and not his father's pipes. And so they were bought by McLeod from the Crun. But again, you come back to this fact that you see large pipes described, you see a small pipe. But that's as far as you get with the descriptions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered, I've got this weird desire to to put what I think of as border pipes more widespread throughout the Highlands. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, and thinking that Barry was going to be on today. I always, there's the, the common, there's a painting, I think it's of uh, an immigrant to Nova Scotia or something, but it's a dude with a beard and a hat, like piping, and he's got trousers on. But his set of pipes are, it's like those half sets, like the three quarter sets, the smaller um, set of pipes. And I was wondering, like, how common are those, um, like, just how far reaching those would have been, if that's what they mean by smaller pipes, too, possibly. And then I kind of had a question, Barry, if you if you know anything about this, like, are there things that we would identify as border pipes that showed up with kind of early immigrants into Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, that area, or is that not part of the uh, musical tradition, really? No, it wasn't really part of anything that I've come across. Uh, even the modern sets, the most I've come across would be a uh, like three-quarter size set of, made by Henderson, which uh, the folks that had it down in Inganish called it a setting pipe. Pipes. And I don't know, because of their accent, I don't know if it was sitting. <laughs> sure. or <playing> <laughs> um, so there you go. But uh, that, I wouldn't draw a lot, put a lot of stock in some of those paintings. Um, um, I have a set of pipes that I got, which I think might have been played in one of the fencible regiments. Um, and when I looked at it first, I thought it was a, like a three-quarter set. But uh, it's just made of less wood. The pieces are a lot sure. thinner. Uh, so yeah. what happens in the 19th century, and, and Keith might have something to say about this too, is um, they started offering what was called an army style bagpipe, which seems, you know, there were thicker walls, uh, because of all the pipes that I've seen, and there's probably just under 10 immigrant sets, um, the, the inside boards are pretty well the same. Um, the only thing that I've found that was totally different uh, was uh, in Iona in Cape Breton, which was settled by people from Barra, of course. Um, I have a loan of the, just a bass drum. And uh, Jeannie Campbell used it in one of, one of her books and described it as homemade, but it, it's not, it's a, uh, it has a chalice top, uh, but the, the, the pieces are actually quite a bit smaller. I'm, I'm at our second home here in Hornby Island, so I don't have all my artifacts. Uh, if you go to the website, you'll see it's just the bass drone. 
the funny thing about it though, it, it has uh, it has cord channels on the base midsection and the top section. So I doubt very much if it was a bellow blown pipe, but sure. it is quite a bit smaller. Although the bores are big, quite large. Yeah. Um, and uh, let me see what else. Um, there's an interesting set two drones, which are very petite. Uh, that again is on the website if you go to the virtual museum. Um, it has a full size chatter, but only two tenor drones. Uh, and the tenor drones really, um, the pieces, the bottom section is about this big and the top section is about this big. So about uh, like, it has a whole... But that's, that's about eight inches, 10 inches, something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah, after, uh, I have more detailed. Uh, you can look at the website, photos. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I have, you know, I can send you a picture of that because they are unique. And I know that they came. We know that they came to Cape Breton in 1807, mm -hmm. so they were old at that time. Sure. Um, is that what they mean by small pipes? Uh, I don't know. It could be because they're they're just smaller. Whether or not they they were ever bellow blown, I don't know because a lot of the stocks have been added from different sets. And like I say, the blowpipe is just a turned piece of wood with a uh, a bone or an ivory mount on the top, uh, very unadorned. Um, but there is an old song. I know John Shaw, who works at used to work at the um, School of Scottish Studies. He collected a lot of songs down on the uh, North Shore of Cape Breton, which was settled by people from Lewis and Harris mostly. Um, and they have a lot of songs that, uh, as John Shaw has written to me, he said they're among the oldest in the canon of some of these milling songs. And they do mention uh, small pipes and big pipes in there. Um, hmm. But like I say, there's no mention of bellows at all. And I, um, I only know of two set of bellow pipes uh, that I've come across. One used to be in the museum at the College of Piping and it was gifted to Seamus McNeil, I think the last year he was there. So it, it has a Cape Breton provenance. Um, but it's a full-size Highland pipe. Started off with two tenor drones, and then a base was added much later. So it's three drone stocks, but it's bellow blown. Oh, cool! Um, it could be that the previous owner maybe had, you know, cancer or emphysema right. or something. Uh, the other set uh, is a set in the Western United States, which is attributed to John McIntyre, um, and uh, who was a piper. You know. He, composed several tunes, of course, in the early 1700s. These again are chalice topped and a bass drone has been added later. But uh, when Colin McRae photographed them in the 1960s, they had bellows attached to them. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I'm thinking may, maybe it might've been to, to extend the life of the reeds or perhaps the player right. you know, couldn't, couldn't physically blow them anymore and then figured he'd just Hook a bellows attachment to it, uh, but as for bellows pipes, I've yet to come across a bellows set in Nova Scotia. But we had a lot of outward migration, um, and you know I haven't even got a chance to check in PEI yet. Uh, there is a set of McDonald border pipes that are in the museum here in Vancouver, which came via Prince Edward Island. Hmm. Um, but uh, I just came across a quote. Uh, in a Catholic journal written in the 1890s, they talked about a uh, census in Prince Edward Island, where uh, part of the census information listed 32 sets of bagpipes and only five plows. Um, <laughs> so, you know, 
Keith, Keith and I have exchanged certain, uh, you know, previous uh, emails about, you know, how many pipers and pipes, actual bagpipes, because we're quite expensive, as Keith will point out. Um, but how they ended up with so many pipes over on this side of the water, I really have no idea. Certainly, there was a, uh, a nascent bagpipe making tradition, but it was it was all Highland. Um, I haven't I haven't yet found any sort of bellow blown. Uh, other than that one bass drum, they're all pretty well full size. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always thought that in this context, that uh, the difference between a big pipe and a small pipe was just size. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, then again, going back far enough, uh, I mean, I keep remembering that uh, quote that Keith uh, produced um, about the guy who was, uh, um, he was, he came up before the Kirk sessions for playing on the Sabbath. And he says, um, well, it was, it was his, uh, his uh, laird who made him do it. And he'd broken his small pipe and, and insisted that he played on the big pipe. Yeah. Otherwise, that's 1600, I think, Keith. Is that yeah, right? That was, that was, six, that was uh, just 1600, yes. So, mm -hmm. I, I don't even know what the, what the big pipe looked like, let alone the small pipe. <laughs> right. yeah. That was one where the, um, the, the dancing that the laird was insisting he played for on the Sabbath was at somewhere called the Peace Craig. But a great fight broke out, which is probably what brought it to the um, notice of the, yes, yes. <laughs> of the Kirk session. But um, Peace Craig as a name seems to have disappeared, probably because it wasn't very peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, it what should be somewhere peaceful? sort of about two miles south of Stirling on the Ockhamboe estate. But uh, yeah, it definitely says in the Kirk session record it was a Peace Craig, but it just hasn't. I mean, it doesn't hasn't survived at all as a place name. <laughs> <laughs> One. One possible, um, well, not a main factor, but one possible advantage. Uh, I mean, I, I think that there were all manner of pipes because they weren't being made, factory made, so I think every pipe would be slightly different depending upon who wanted it and what for. But um, I think one advantage that switching to the bellows, even uh, if you have, well, take the standard large pipe, which became the, the, the great highland pipe in the north and the lowland pipe, uh, uh, town uh, pipers, borough pipers pipe in the south. Um, you can play it by mouth, you can put a bellows on, you can play it by bellows. But there's one great advantage that the bellows player has. Um, I, on behalf of Colman Boyle, was with a couple of early poems, Gallic poems for him, <clears throat> where he was puzzled over a couple of things. And it became fairly obvious that there were two factors being associated with the Highland mouth-blown pipe. Um, one was salt, which, if you think about it, actually soaks up moisture, so that was being used as the, uh, the means of absorbing moisture. And also, salt itself tends to have an astringent uh, aspect, so it sort of keeps the bacterial count down. The other one, which seems to have been used both for suppleness and blocking up the pores, is fish oil. And there are a couple of references in two uh, Gallic poems from around about the beginning of the 1700s, which um, associate uh, fish oil and being smelly with Highland yeah. pipers. <laughs> yeah, that would be a reeking uh, instrument. But I guess everything reeked, so it probably wouldn't be that bad. And reeked of fish <laughs> especially, so... Um, yeah. well, there's, a, there's a wonderful story about um, uh, 
the piper um, from uh, I can't remember exactly where Galashiels possibly no um, who who um, used uh, goose fat to to season his pipes mm. um, yeah. and he 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 stayed overnight in 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 because he was caught out um, by the weather or perhaps I can't remember the details of this story anyway he um. He wrapped his he wrapped the pipes up in the in the in his uh, um, host's best bed linen, <laughs> and, um, uh, with the consequences that the, the bed linen was never quite the same again. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I wish I could remember the details of this story. All that's all that's remained is the disaster of the consequences of using goose fat. <laughs> there's a there's a little anecdote about. Uh, a person from the 21st century went back into the 18th century. They would be astonished at the stink yeah. of the place, yeah. the smells, especially in the cities. But if a person from the 18th century came to the 21st century, they'd be deafened by the noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a well-known tune, The Flowers of Edinburgh, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, they reckon you could smell London from a hundred miles away. <laughs> well, I, Metaphorically, you still can. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a hasty, the Piper. It right. was. It was hasty. Jed. Yeah. Jedper. Yeah, Jedper, of course. Yeah. Well, he was uh, a butcher, wasn't he? <laughs> wasn't he a butcher? No, quite possibly. Yes. <laughs> so he would have easy access to goose fat. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're coming up on when we're going to lose people to, to dinner bells. So I, yeah, I have, uh, you're going to lose me fairly soon. Yeah. All right. Well, just so one thing that, so every time I, I read one of these old uh, manuscripts or like tutorials uh, or uh, reading John Gibson's book, talking about this stuff and, you know, the, the act of taking an oral tradition, like a musical oral tradition, and then writing it down, there's this sense that you're losing something. And in the preface and in the article, there's a lot of discussion of, um, that this is sort of the best way we can interpret it, um, but it's, you know, that tunes would be performed differently every way. So, like, do we ruin this stuff? Like, what is what is our obligation? I'm, I'm curious what all of you think about this. Um, like, do we have license to do what we want with it? From reading the preface and article, I really felt empowered to kind of experiment with how these tunes are written to find something that musically spoke to me, whether it's playing around with the rhythm or playing around with... Um, some of the melody notes, but at the same time, you know, they discuss how Patrick went through some pretty deep efforts to make sure they were as close as he could of, you know, recording the tune and then playing it back to the person that sung it to make sure that they agreed with it. Um, so is it, are we obligated to recreate it? Should we take what he writes about it of, you know, that it was different every time as license? And I'm particularly kind of curious about Barry's take on this as, you know, somebody that's collected a bunch of tunes like now with the benefit of audio recordings, it feels like, oh, I guess we should, we, I don't know, like where, where does our own interpretation come in when it comes to, you know, playing through old, old collections of music? If you don't change it, it will die. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all very well. I mean, I, I'm, an, I'm an antique in all ways. It's all very well trying to get back to as it was, but it's not going to live with the, later generations if you try and freeze it at Estic. So the answer is that um, 
use it as a basis to try and keep some form of the tradition running. Yeah. But I think you can't reproduce what it was because we don't really know what it was. Yeah, that's good. But, there's a, but there is a continuity, even though we can't go back to the 18th century. The 18th century people and the 17th century people, they, they produced further generations and we're part of that chain. So you can never capture what it was. You can only play it how you how you play it now. And you can take liberties with it or you can or you can uh, copy. Uh, but um, it's not none of it's fixed in stone, is it? Yeah. Well the baseline is that nobody can stop people taking liberties with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a modern fact of life. If if it's available and somebody wants to take a liberty with it, there's little one can do to stop it. So uh, <laughs> Uh, an informed liberty is better than an uninformed liberty. <laughs> yeah. uh, I went through a lot of the pipe tunes there today and I found myself, you know, I don't play exactly like the old timers do, but I, I've heard a lot of them play. And so what I ended up doing, you have to realize that this uh, Patrick's collection is meant for flute and probably violin. And so you get a lot of these notes of the same pitch that are there. Um, and so I ended up having to change them anyway, but some of them are quite nice. Um, and I do have a, a little recording uh, to follow up on Matt's thing. We don't really know how they play. I guess I'm in a unique position in the fact that I've got a lot of tapes of people um, playing an older style. And because we were dealing with Patrick today, I was I brought along a little sound file of Joe Huey McIntyre from French Road, who was descended from Duncan McIntyre, who was the uh, piper to the Clan Randalls in the mid uh, 18th century. And how he plays is is very much described in Joseph McDonald's treatise. Um, the use of P-Brock embellishments, uh, the use of almost doubling up on all the notes. Um, and I've used some of his recordings, one in my book in the CD that comes with Dance of the Piper. And I get actually criticized by putting these recordings in there by 20th century pipers saying that, you know, their pipes are out of tune, they're, they're not playing the proper scale, they're not playing the proper embellishments. But they miss the point entirely because what we have is I'm not saying it's perfectly or a perfect uh, example of how they played during the immigrated times, but I'm quite confident having surveyed piping recordings from around the world that they were the last of their type. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of threads um, of 17th and 18th century piping in these guys and their interpretation of music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't have enough to make a full chart and blanket, I guess, but there's <laughs> enough there to, to give us a, an idea of, of what the music was like. And it varied from, from area to area. That's why I think when you look at Patrick McDonald's collection, he's really just said about the bare bones. Um, yeah. And to quote Scott Skinner, staff notation really is just a skeleton and you have to put the flesh on it itself. And he does in the preface draw attention to the fact that you really have to hear these things played or sung to get the mm -hmm. full feeling. Uh, Joe Neal McNeil, the great storyteller in Cape Breton, he said the same thing. Uh, he was criticizing modern pipers who were reading uh, tunes out of the book. He said, they're only as good as they're taught. They take the tune from the book, but there's so much missing from the book. They don't have the taste they, they've never heard the tunes. They never heard the history. They never heard them played. And so it's impossible to, to put that in if you've never, you don't know what you're doing. You've never actually heard it before. So um, 
yeah. Spoiler alert: I'm doing I'm doing a paper if I ever get around, but I'm going to compare like uh, Ella Curry's and Joe Huey McIntyre to Gaelic-speaking pipers in Barra and do a cross-case mm -hmm. analysis. Uh, the problem for me, though, is they put so much stuff in their music, uh, little licks here and there, uh, mm -hmm. that even when you look at early collections, like if you go through Joseph McDonald's, it's very sparsely uh, grace noted. And then he describes this doubling up on notes. But when you hear Joe Huey play it, you realize exactly what he was talking about. Oh, uh, it's, cool. it's a hard instrument. To, to fit all that stuff in. Anyway, Jeremy, if we have a few minutes after, I know um, a few folks are going to go for supper. I can play that for you. It's probably about four minutes yeah. long. So stress in a few reels. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, if anybody else has time, you know, they can listen to it as well. But uh, I can put that on everybody else after everybody else talks. Right. Well, I, I'd be interested to hear that, but I'm assuming that it will come around again. Very. <laughs> 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 Because uh, I've I'm, I've got to go and uh, I should be uh, my dinner will be in the dog. They <laughs> <laughs> feed the dog. It was a, a metaphorical dog. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for coming, Pete. Well, yeah. thanks. Uh, thanks for everybody for coming. It's been really interesting. Uh, oh, and one thing I did notice talking about how to play these things. He says um, about the dance music. He says, um, "You can choose the, the the player can choose how fast to play it." Yeah, everything else. I'll play it really slow, but play the dance stuff as fast as you want. Yeah, as you like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and speaking of which, Willie Kimber, who was the concertina player for Headington Morris when Cecil Sharp uh, first saw the Morris being danced, um, uh, someone said about. Um, uh, on the on the on the LP of, of his playing. They're interviewing um, one of the dancers, and he says, "What kind of speed did you dance at?" And he said, "Well, if there was no one there when we were dancing, we would we would play it quite we would dance quite slowly. Uh, Kimber would play quite slowly, but if there was a big crowd, then we'd go like bloody hell." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll leave you with that thought. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. See you, Pete. My thing about the like change the tradition or not, I, I've always felt like Peabrook in particular, always there's this weird um, possession over it of like how it's supposed to sound. And we have the benefit of recordings, but I, I really loved his interpretation of like these Peabrooks are, you know, it's you, the performers just kind of move with the notes that you, you slow down, you hang on notes that feel emotional or, or poignant to you rather than playing everything in common time. Um, and yeah, I just, I think there's so much uh, to be gained from kind of getting back to a musicality or just ha letting the music move you rather than playing it exactly as as written or exactly as your judge thinks is musical. But if you're competing, you better play something that the judge finds musical as well as yourself, I suppose. But if you're just playing Peabrook to enjoy it, um, I was, yeah, I just felt super empowered <laughs> by, by the, the article of, yeah, make these things, make these things good to you. But. Yeah. Well, yeah, Barry, do you want to? Oh, is it? This is just going to be uh, like Joe Huey McIntyre learned within his family. Um, they were pipers that came to Cape Breton in, in 1826 from South Hewis. Um, he was born in 1891 and he died in 1969. According to one of his sons, he knew over 1,200 tunes. 
um, um, and he's, he never he never started to read music until after he retired. So I think that was in the 1960s. And he was uh, pushed on by that by his brother, his younger brother, Duncan, who actually had uh, had uh, attended courses with Willie Ross um, during the Second World War. And um, Willie Ross's daughter, Cicely, played the piano. So Duncan would take his fiddle up because he was a Cape Breton fiddler too. And, and they would play tunes together. Um, and apparently, according to his descendants, uh, Willie Ross expressed an interest in, he'd like to hear Strasbays and Reels played in Cape Breton style. So what you're going to hear here now is uh, Tullock Gorham, um, Strasbay, and um, just a slew of Reels, um, Sandy Cameron, um, John Morrison of Ascent House. Um, but, you know, disregard the overall sound of the instrument he would have been uh, this was recorded in the late 60s so a couple of years before he died he would have been you know in the 70 range um but listen to what he puts on the notes and how he doubles up it was said of joe huey that where most pipers put one note he always put two and mm -hmm. you can hear uh quite plainly on ease here and uh, they're great because they change the structure of the theme note because they, you know, you're not coming down from the chanter as pipers play ease. Now you're actually coming up from the bottom hand. So here is Joe Huey starting off with uh, Tullicorum and then just a whole slew of reels. So a friend of mine said the Strass Bay is the appetizer, but the reels are the main course. <laughs> so here we go. And he used to play for dances uh, quite a bit. Most of his life, actually. Here we go. Rita and
Did you hear that okay? Mostly, yeah. It kind of went a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I might ask you yeah, for the clip if you don't mind to include it. Yeah, it, uh, it drags a bit because I, I copied it from a reel to reel. His son oh, yeah. was smart enough to get it. And you know how they kind of drag, you know, they drag, especially if they've been sitting in a shoebox for like 30, 30 uh, years, right? Um, but uh, yeah, no, I can, I can fix you up with a clip. But if you, if, you, if you go across, if you, you know, if you listen to what he's putting in there, uh, like the ease, he's putting those G's in there. And that's, that's hard to do. I mean, yeah. Trust me, and when you yeah. when you learn one way, and then you try to go back and put that in there, um, yeah. But I mean, he's got a classic dance rhythm. Uh, another cut that I have is of him playing um, Blair Drummond because he would have learned it from the Scotsgirds version. But you know, he's a dance player, so he he, he doesn't play the the twelve eight compound rhythm version that pipers and pipe bands play now. It's all very laid back. And he's reclaimed the C in the tacum. He doesn't do a, a quick to C to A. He dwells on the C and cuts yeah. the A. So you get E da 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 dum be da 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 dum be da dee dee da 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 dee 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 da 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 dee da da dee da dee da da dee da 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 and it's all double D grace notes on the B and the C. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't do a high degrees on it. So, and if you know that's reflected in you know David Glenn's collection and some of the early Tudor books in the mid nineteen hundred uh, mid nineteenth century. Anyway, yeah. you, you can drop me a line and let me know what you're looking for, Jeremy, and I'll fix you up. So, well, cool. Um, looks like we lost Keith. I'm not sure if his phone timed out. So, I, I guess I'll just have to isolate a clip of him speaking and say, "This is Keith Sanger." <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. All right, thank you guys so much. This has been, yeah. been a blast. Well, I always learn something from these, Jeremy, so I wish I could attend more of them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, um, yeah, <laughs> I'll be in, I'll be in touch with how this is, is coming along. But, uh, yeah, this is, this is great. I did forget to hit record on my backup recording, so hopefully the primary. All right, that was great. Uh, big thanks again to Keith Sanger. Matt Seattle, Barry Shears, and Pete Stewart for agreeing to do this chat with me, and again, John Daly for sort of making all the introductions and setting everything up for us. Be sure to check the show notes. I'll have links to uh, everybody's information, so to a bunch of articles that Keith has written, um, Barry Shears' website, which has got some uh, cool resources on it, uh, as well as Matt Seattle's website where you can look at all of his books and Pete's books uh, on Pete's website too. So lots of cool links to look at. Uh, also, Barry included like a little write-up on the tune that uh, he sent, or the, the playing that he sent in of Joy Huey McIntyre. So if you want to know more about that, you can check that out in the show notes. A couple things to note. Uh, next week, we're going to have a bunch of tunes from the various discussions that came, or the various collections that came up during uh, this chat here. So I think at this point I've got 19 tunes, so nine tunes from uh, Patrick McDonald's collection, uh, a tune from Eliza Rose's coll uh, Ross's collection, a tune from one of those Isla collections that uh, Keith was talking about, which is called Celtic Melodies, uh, a tune from Daniel Dow, and a tune from Alexander Campbell. So uh, lots of good music coming up next week. Um, and I might add more <laughs> between now and then. Uh, the other thing, if you still have some things you want to talk about, because I know I certainly do about 
this uh, this text and after our discussion here, I'm going to be hosting a Zoom kind of book club for an hour or so on Wednesday, August 11th at 7 p.m. my time, so that's Central U.S. time. Let me know if you want to come to that. Uh, just email me at waytotwag at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to know more information or anything, you can always support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash waytotwag. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>